It is good to be with everyone today. Uh, so where I grew up, uh, we didn't have middle school. We had uh, what they call junior high, so seventh, eighth, and ninth graders uh, together. Um, and I was I was not a tall kid. Um, it it looked like my growth spurt actually might never come as I was entering seventh grade. And I'd heard all these scary stories about what junior high was going to be like. In elementary school, I was a sixth grader. I was, I was kind of top of the hill. Um, but man, I heard crazy stories. I was afraid to even go use the restroom in the school because I heard uh, about these things called, uh, I think it's called a swirly, where your head is forcibly dunked into a toilet and then flushed. Um, and, and I didn't want that. So my strategy was I was just going to hold it all day. And, and, and it worked. Um, uh, I did that on the first day. I'd heard stories about kids from other elementary schools that were scary dudes. Um, one in particular, I remember there was this kid named Mike, and, and I just heard how tough he was and how many kids he beat up. But um, the, the kind of the, the mystique about Mike, and I'm not making fun of, of him at all, um, but he only had one hand, right? Which added to like this mystery of like, man, this one-handed guy that just beats people up. And, and no one that I knew knew how he lost his other hand. Um, so I walked into school with trepidation that first day. Um, I, was, I was scared. I'd never fought anyone. I, I was not tough. Um, and, and I got to lunchtime, and things were going okay, and I was with a couple guys I knew from elementary school, but then there were guys from other schools, and we're joking and having a good time. And then this one kid said something just kind of outlandish. I didn't really know his name yet, and I, I just said, oh, shut up. Like, like, you're lying. Like, that's not true. I didn't mean, like, shut up in a mean way. And he looks at me in just rage in his eyes, and, and he says, what did you say? And, 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 and just as I'm like about to try and like explain myself, I look over and see he only has one hand. This is Mike. And, and I can't, like I, I can't squeak out a word. And, and he, he threatens to kill me, which looking back is kind of excessive. Um, and then he sees my Coca-Cola and he says, give me that. And I'm thinking, this is a great trade. Like if you'll take the Coke as a sacrifice, I'm good. Um, I was pretty nervous. Uh, but by the end of the day, I realized that, that I had this one kid in almost all my classes. And, and I, I'd known him before from elementary school. We were acquaintances, but, but not really friends. Um, and, and by the end of the week, man, we were joking all the time together. We were hanging out. We, we did a, a lot together that year in school, but, but it was really just because we had all the same classes together. And this guy's name was, was Jason. And Jason was a big dude. Like he, he had a growth spurt probably like three or four. Like he was a massive human being, both in height and in, in, uh, in wit. Um, and and he, uh, he was easily the strongest kid in our grade. The first day he walked into school, he might have been the strongest kid in, in all of junior high. He, uh, he, he, he played football at our junior high, played football in high school, played in college, even had a brief stint in the NFL. Like he was a massive, massive guy. And I, I can't express to you what it was like being friends with the scariest guy in junior high. Uh, no one messed with me, right? It didn't matter that I had never fought anybody, that I was a tiny guy. Uh, we hung out together and, and no one dared, no one dared mess with me because I was friends with Jason. 
And that's a terrible comparison to, to, the, to God and, and his people, and that his people are to, to not fear, that we're to have total confidence in Yahweh. And we're going to see that, that Yahweh redeems his people. He has the power to redeem. He has the desire to redeem. And this week in these chapters, we, we see that with absolute certainty, he will redeem. He will save his people. So as believers, we have nothing to fear because, because of who God is and because he is with us, right? And this does not mean bad stuff won't happen to uh, Christians, right? Bad stuff happens. Life is hard. Like we know if we just think about it logically, every person we know and love, one day they, they will die. Their, their life on this earth will be over. And I don't say that to depress you, but, but I, I don't want us to walk into Christianity thinking, oh, everything's going to be easy if I trust Christ. No, that's not true. Life is really hard. But for those who trust in him, God is with us in all of it. He's forgiven you of your sin. He's prepared a place for you to dwell with him for eternity. You might remember last week in chapter 40, um, there's this accusation. It happens in verse 27. Israel accuses God of neglecting them, of not caring about them, of ignoring them. And in, in, in these chapters, uh, we, we really see a, a response to that complaint. In chapter 41, God shows his power and his control over human history and, and seeks to show God's intentions to redeem and his, his ability to save his people. And we can imagine that for Israel, for God's people, um, the, the exile, right? Being exiled to, with the Assyrians, being exiled um, uh, because of Babylon. We can imagine that that led many to, to lose faith in their God, right? Maybe, uh, maybe they're thinking, maybe God doesn't really care about us. Or, or maybe God really isn't all that powerful. And I wonder if you've ever found yourself asking maybe those questions or a question similar to that. Well, chapter 41, it's bookended with uh, these courtroom scenes with the trial. Uh, the, the first verses are uh, uh, a trial. It's, it's focused on the nations, and, and ultimately uh, they, they worship idols. And at the end of the chapter, it's, uh, it's a trial uh, courtroom scene uh, against the idols themselves. And then sandwiched in between verses 8 through 20 are these salvation oracles focused on God's people. So let's, let's begin with this first trial scene, verse 1. Listen to me in, in silence, which, uh, O coastlands, which, uh, O coastlands is just short, shorthand for like the ends of the earth, right? Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. So he calls the nations to come and listen to God's evidence and then there to respond. And we've seen this same question asked throughout the book of Isaiah Will you trust in God? Will you, will you respond to this life by trusting in God, or will you foolishly find something else to trust in, like an idol? So then in verse 2, God says, Who is stirred up one from the east? And, and chapter 41 doesn't name Cyrus the Persian, but by chapter 44, we clearly see that this is who God is talking about here. The Persians came and conquered the Babylons and, and, and set free the exiles so that they could return to their homeland. And God had already predicted this way back in chapter 13. God is the one who gave Cyrus the power to conquer Babylon, the power to free 
Israel. God's the one behind all of history. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, planned it, right? He'd, he'd even said, this is, this is what I'm going to do, right? Just like he did with the Assyrians, just like we did with the Babylonians now with Cyrus. Yeah, so Cyrus is a, a great example of, of the former things that we read about in Isaiah. God called upon these former things. He brought it about. He shows his power, and, and, and it should give us confidence that he's going to do the new things that he talks about, that he will bring about this new age for his people. And at the end of verse 4, God says, so who, who did this? And he answers, he said, I, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. So how do the nations then respond to this evidence, right? They're afraid, but, but they don't respond uh, biblically how they should, right? The, the fear of the Lord is uh, the beginning of wisdom. No, they, they respond by seeing who this God is, and their response is to make an idol, Right? They, they make what is false. And verse 7 gives us uh, a, l- a little picture of what making uh, an idol is like. Verse 7, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer, uh, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it, not, it cannot be moved. Right? There's all these people involved in just making this one idol. It takes work to believe in what is false. The, the craftsman does his part. The, the goldsmith does their part. The, the one who does the finished work, someone who, who does the soldering, looks at it and says, it is good. And, and I think that's supposed to flash us back to Genesis, right? When, when God creates and he looks at what he's creating, he, he, he calls it good. But here is, is a person, one of many people that's taken to make this idol, and they call it good. And, and it doesn't have the same ring to it as when Yahweh says it. And then I love this last little jab that Isaiah throws in. He says, to make it stronger, they put a nail in it so it can't fall over, right? Is what you worship in life so fragile that you need a nail to hold it up? And maybe you're thinking, I don't worship anything. What I mean by that is what you're banking on, what you're trusting, what you put your hope in, right? Could it just be wiped out? God doesn't need anything to strengthen him. He needs no one to hold him up. And as we'll see shortly, he is the one holding his people up. God is the one his people are to look to and to trust. And with confidence, securely rest in him. They're not to fear because it is God, Yahweh, the only true God who is with them, who loves his people, who will defend his people, who will fulfill his promise because that's who he is. He can't go back on what he has said he would do. Israel should turn to him, trust in him, be, set, be the set-apart nation that's to bless the nations by telling the world who Yahweh is. And then, like I said, verses 8 through 20, the focus shifts to Israel. It's, it's uh, these salvation oracles. God's people need not fear because God is with them. So there's no obstacle, there's no need that can change, that they're chosen by God and that he will save them. Verse eight starts off, it says, you, but you, Israel, my servant. Right? And I doubt that many of us, when we hear this, this name for Israel, my servant, we probably don't think, man, that's an awesome way to be described as a person, my servant. We don't want to be servants. Uh, but this is a title for God's people, and it's not an insult. It's an honor. We, we remember Mary, 
Right? When she's told that she's going to carry the Messiah in her, her womb, she responds and says, I'm a servant of the Most High. So the only way I, I can even think to bridge this gap and just how we, how we feel about the word servant is, is to ask, have you ever had a, a really great boss? I know all of us have had mediocre bosses. Uh, some of us have had really bad bosses. But have you ever had a, a really great boss? And self-employed people, I kind of assume you haven't. That's why you're self-employed. Um, but, but some of us have had awesome bosses, right? And it, their character, uh, the way they lead, their, their trustworthiness, their care for their employees, like they are a joy to work for. Yahweh is good in everything that he does. And I think we've seen that over and over again in Isaiah. If you know him, you recognize how he, he lavishes you with his grace. You, you've experienced forgiveness of, of, of the sins you've committed, and you know that all the sins you will commit are forgiven. You've come to know, to trust, to believe that he loves you, which is mind-boggling because he knows everything about you, right? There's no hidden thought, no hidden deed. He knows you completely and still loves you. Serving this God is such a privilege. Let's keep going. He says, Jacob, which is another name for Israel, whom I have chosen, and this word chosen, it's, it's rooted in love. When the Bible speaks of election, it is grounded in love, both God's love for the chosen and the love of the chosen for God. So it's a remarkable statement to make that God has chosen his people. And all of us like to be chosen. Right? We've all been chosen for different things. Maybe in school, your teacher chose you for some role in the class or some job. Or maybe, uh, maybe you were chosen for a part in the choir or, or band, or, uh, or in theater, right? I remember fourth grade, I was chosen to have the lead role in our little class, pay, uh, cl class play, um, uh, Paddington Bear, right? I was Paddington from deepest, darkest Peru. I always had an orange marmalade sandwich. That's kind of all the story I remember, but I was chosen, and it felt awesome. Maybe you tried out for a team that you were chosen for, or, or maybe... Maybe at work, your boss chose you to take the lead in a project. It's, it's significant to us when we're chosen for something. But all of those examples have something to do with the talent that you have or, or at least potential that someone sees in you. But Scripture doesn't indicate that God chooses us because we had something that we brought to the relationship, something that made us worthy of being chosen but we also aren't chosen like, like someone who buys a lottery ticket and, and happens to win the lottery. No, God's choosing is on purpose. It's rooted in his wisdom, in his love. He has chosen to lavish his people in his perfect love. We'll keep going here. The offspring of Abraham, my friend, which I want to talk about, but I don't have enough time. Go to John 15. It's pretty incredible. Verse 9, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Right? And this is such a beautiful picture. Maybe you're thinking, oh, casting off, why? Because Israel is so unfaithful, and yet God, in his love for his chosen, he does not cast us off, even though we, we turn on him over and over again. How remarkable it is that God's faithfulness isn't changed by our sin. 
Verse 10, it says, fear not for I'm with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God's people have nothing to fear because of who Yahweh is. If you are God's, you know the only self-existent being. Right? He's complete in himself. That is who is with you. He is our God. He's with us. He strengthens us. He upholds us with his right hand. And we can imagine why Israel, in their circumstances, might be afraid. Right? We can put ourselves in their shoes and look at their situation and understand the struggle to trust, the struggle to believe. Right? How could it be that God's elect were forcibly taken from their land? That would mess with your faith in God. And maybe they're like us, right? We, we love to read circumstances and try and figure out like what God is doing. We draw conclusions about what he must be doing or what he must not be doing. It's easy for us to trust more in our ability to, to connect got dots rather than trust in God, right? We're quick to say, oh, this happened and this happened. So this must be how God is working rather than, than just trusting that God is at work. Christians, do we trust in who God is? And meditating on Isaiah 40 this last week was, was so good for me. If, if you didn't do that after our time last week in Isaiah 40, I'd, I'd encourage you to, to just meditate on, on how God is revealed. Right? I was just thinking about the, the power of God to redeem, his desire to save. The God of the Bible is the only one worthy of trusting, right? He's the only non-contingent being. He depends on no one else. This is the God we serve. He's the one who calls us to place our trust in him and how worthy of trust he is. What's remarkable is that he's still willing to be their God, right? After their cyclical history of turning their back on him over and over again, and yet he chooses to redeem them. He wants them to know him and him to know them. Verse 13, for I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I'm the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I'm the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So back in verse 10, it says that he's upholding us with his righteous right hand. And then here he's saying that he's holding our right hand, right? So, so with his left hand, the, the picture is he's, he's holding our right hand and, and, and with his right hand, he's upholding us. Like, I don't know if he's got a sword or, or what he's doing, but, but, but there's this picture of him defending us, protecting us. He's making a way and he has us with him. And I, I just can't help but, but picture this father-child relationship. When your kids are little, uh, there's just something about them that wants to hold their parent's hand. Right? There's a security there. There's a belonging, an identification that I am his and, and he is mine. And it should give us great confidence that no matter what's happening in our world, we can trust in our God who is with us. No matter what we face, no matter what fear you might have for your loved ones, God reminds us, do not fear, for I am the one who helps you. And I wonder, what do you fear right now? Our world feels so crazy right now. 
It's always been crazy, but there's something about right now, and, and Scripture tells us, man, it's going to keep getting worse. What do, what do you fear right now? Does your fear consume you? Or as your fears rear their head, is it a trust in God that, that permeates you, knowing that he's with you? Verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water and, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Right? He meets our needs, physical, spiritual, emotional. God is the one who meets our needs. And, and notice he says, I, the Lord, will answer them. He, he's taking care of us personally. God is not distant. He's right there with his people. And I know that there are times where it may not feel like God is with you. It, it might feel like God is far off or, or, or that he's hiding, but that's not the picture we're given in this passage if someone is far off, it's because we are trying to push God away. We are trying to run from him. It says, no, he will answer his people. He will meet their needs. He isn't going to leave them high and dry. And the more I've meditated on, on, on these chapters and, and even our chapters for next week, the more I just think about how relational God is, how loving God is, that God himself will take care of his people. Right? He doesn't get just some assistant to do it that's you know, paid way less. Like No, he, he, he himself will take care of it. He hears the cries of his people. He sees the need. He himself answered, uh, answers the needs. And we, we see this most fully in Jesus. God sends his very son to take on flesh, to live the sinless life that we're supposed to live. And yet he dies in our place as a sacrifice for sinful humanity, for anyone who would trust in him. And of course, he defeats death by raising from the grave. God himself does that. Jesus, God in the flesh. Don't buy the lie that God is distant, that God is neglecting you, that God doesn't care. God is faithful. Right? He, he may not provide in the moment, in the way that you perceive your, your needs, but he provides in his perfect timing. Verse 20. It says that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So here we have a very clear explanation of, of what God's purpose is in election and in delivering his people. It's so that the world may see who God is. The world may see, may respond to who God is. God's people are this vehicle, not for their own glory, but for God's so that the world may see who this great God is. God's revealing himself by redeeming his people. And in the closing section of chapter 41 in your Bibles, it might be labeled something like the futilities, uh, the futility of idols. And earlier in seven, right, we, we saw the, the idol worshipers who were challenged, but now it's the idols themselves that, that God takes to task in the courtroom. And he, he mocks these fake gods. Verse 23, he says, tell us what is to come hereafter that, that we may know that you are gods. Do good, do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified, right? Do something, show that you are worthy. But of course, they're not. Right? No created thing is worthy of putting our trust in. No possession, no relationship, no amount of wealth, no experience, or, or, or whatever it is that you think, oh, if I just had this, or, or if I just felt this way, then I'd be satisfied. 
Every created thing that we're tempted to put our hope in is as useless as a handcrafted idol. And if you're a believer, you know the truth, and yet you also know our propensity to, to be intrigued and distracted by other things that will not last. Verse 24, behold, you are nothing. Again, talking to idols. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you, right? That's, that's the value of, of worshiping these created things. They're, they're not just nothing. They're, they're less than nothing. We, we give ourselves to something other than God, and there's actually a subtraction that happens. And those who reject God and run after any other created thing, they're an abomination. And as a hearer, as a reader of this passage, We've got to ask ourselves, okay, what do I do with this? And it reminds me back in, in Joshua 24 when, when Joshua says, you've got to make a choice, right? Choose for this day whom you will serve. Isaiah lays out a case that, that makes the choice, I think, pretty obvious. Choose God. Turn to him, the only true God, the only one worthy of giving all of who you are to we get into chapter 42, and it introduces uh, uh, the servant. Um, this is the first of four what are called servant songs. And verses 1 through 4 present this servant to the hearers and, and readers. And then verses 5 through 9, uh, it's an address from God to the servant. Let's jump in. Verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a, fake, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not go faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So one question that we have to ask ourselves as readers here is who is this servant? Because we just saw Israel identified as the servant of God. So is, is this speaking of Israel? Because we know Israel's track record. We know they've dropped the ball over and over again as God's servant. And, and this servant sounds very different. Or some ask, could this servant be Cyrus the Persian? Right? There are ways that, that you could take some of these verses and, and see that Cyrus, yeah, he'll kind of bring about justice in some sense, but certainly not the complete justice that's described here and not in the way it's described. And most of us, if, if you've been in church for a while, you hear this and, and you think, okay, there's a, there's a messianic feel to this, right? We see Jesus in this, the Christ, who is the ideal Israel. And, and I mean, he will perfectly do everything that Israel is supposed to do as God's servant. He's faithful to Yahweh. He's committed to the Father perfectly. He longs for God to be glorified above all else, which is demonstrated by his obedient service to God. He will bring justice. He will reveal himself to the nations. So the identity of the servant here is kind of ambiguous in this chapter, but, but it will soon become clear as we proceed further and further through the rest of Isaiah. But, but we see how this servant's described. It says, my soul delights in him. I put my spirit in him, right? It mentions justice over and over again, he's going to bring justice to not, not just Israel, but to the whole earth. And he will not stop. He will accomplish this. And then in verses 5 through 9, we see why the servant will have the success 
that he will have in bringing justice to the world. It's, it's because of who he is. It's, it's because of the, the character and the nature of who Yahweh is, which is what undergirds the majesty and mission that's entrusted to God's servant. Verse 5, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. Right? This feels like last week in chapter 40. Right? God is not only majestic and all-powerful. He's the one who gives life. And look at how he cares for his people. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is who God is. He does not stop working to save, but he's not just saving this tiny nation that he's chosen. No, he's, he's at work to save from every nation, from every people. He's setting people free, people who only know darkness. He's opening eyes of the blind. He's bringing them into the light. And we, we remember the complaint back in 40, 27, that, that, that God has neglected Israel. But I think the complaint here is, is clearly addressed. God is sending his servant who's going to bring justice, not simply justice for Israel, but to the world, right? So the, the nations are in view here. I don't want you to miss that, that he will set the captives free. Verse 80 says, I am the Lord. That's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And that should give us incredible confidence. We'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. And I'm guessing as, as you read 8 and 9, you can see the connections to the previous two chapters this servant song is intended to be read in, in the context of, of this revelation that, that, that Isaiah has given us of who God is, the God who has the power to control human history, right? which these fake gods, these idols are totally incapable of doing. One commentator wrote this, and I, I love it. It says, because he alone transcends the cosmos, he alone can explain the course of history. He alone can turn that course in a whole new direction and tell the world in advance that he is going to do it. This servant's ministry will be a confirmation that God, whose character is epitomized in the name Yahweh, is the only God and Savior. Yahweh, the, the, the name revealed to Moses, right? he is personal, he is unchanging, he's the God that, that made this covenant with Israel. His glory is on the line, right? He said, my glory I share with no other. I'm not, I'm not going to let little idols get my glory, which if we think about that long enough, it should make us even more confident that God will save, that God will do what he's promised to do. Ezekiel had a similar message that if God's people remained in bondage, then God would, he would look like he's just another idol, right? That, that the rest of the nations worship both his character and his name would be profaned all over the world. So God must deliver his people from bondage. He must deliver them from their sin for the sake of his glory. So God's people can trust that, that for the sake of his glory, he will do exactly what he said he'll do. He will, he will fulfill his promise. Verse 16, he says, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. 
in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do. I do not forsake them. Someone who is blind uh, can be incredibly self-sufficient, especially in a place, in an environment that they know. But understandably, it's much more difficult for them when they're somewhere that they've never been. And this is the picture here of, of the helplessness, the helpless state that humanity finds itself in. But this is who God is. He leads the blind. He turns their darkness into light. This is what God does for those who turn to him. Verse 18 and following really describe the sad state of God's people, right? Having everything that they needed to trust in God, and yet they can't do it on their own. They, they, they certainly are in no state to lead the nations to God. They're utterly helpless. Read, read verse 18 with me. Hear you deaf and look, you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? Clearly, this, this servant is Israel. Verse 20, he sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he doesn't hear. He doesn't observe. He, he doesn't keep or retain. He doesn't hear. There's no obedience, which over and over again in Scripture, we see that we're called to obey God. We're called to obey his law. I think especially of Deuteronomy. Israel's called to observe and obey, observe and obey. But God's servant Israel is blind and deaf. God's people have had ample opportunity to turn to God, to trust in him alone, to follow him, to obey him, to be the representative to the nations that they were always supposed to be, but they continue to stumble along. Verse 21 says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake, to magnify his law, to make it glorious. Right? When we hear law, we, we can't just think of, uh, of the books of the law. We can't just think of Moses on Sinai. We, we think of those, but we also realize this is God's revelation. This is the story of God pursuing sinful people and redeeming those people, making those people uh, his people. Right? This is God's revelation of the nature and meaning of life. And it tells us why God does this, for his righteousness sake, right? It's because of who God is. It is, it is the nature of his character. Right? He's totally committed to doing what is good and right and true. God, God wants people to live into what they were made to live for and, and what is good and true, which is to know God, to be known by him, to have life in him, right? Real life, not, not the knockoff life that this world promises, but life that is, is genuine in him. And God is working to redeem people. This righteousness in our world, in this broken, messed up world, this is God's grace to us. But look at how Israel responds, in, 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 or is described in verse 22. But this, this is a people plundered, looted. They're, they're, they're all trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They, they've become plundered with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. And then in verse 24, God asks an interesting question that, that really helps us see what all this trouble has been about. Verse 24, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways that we would uh, not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on them the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around 
but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Why was Israel exiled? Was it because God couldn't save? Was it because God didn't care? No, their exile was was discipline. It It was punishment. It was judgment for their rejection of him. But even in that it was so that they would turn to him. God was working to save, right? That's why they were sent into exile. But would they understand? Would they, as Isaiah says, take it to heart? If not, then exile would not be the worst part of their experience. God is at work to redeem his people whom he has chosen. Will you turn to him? Will you look to him and be saved? Or will you trust in something else? Right? Something just as worthless as the idols that were described in our passage. All who trust in God know that, that you are his because he has chosen you. Right? He's made it so that you would be in his family. And because you are his, uh, because he, you're his, he is with you, which means you have nothing to fear. Right? Nothing in this world can rip you out of his loving hands. He has saved you, and by redeeming you, he is making you a light to this world. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, Lord. And um, God, I'm, I'm, I'm so uh, incapable of, uh, of explaining your word, Lord. I thank you, Spirit, that you're with us, that you are a teacher. God, I thank you that you speak through your word. God, in anything that, that, that I said that was helpful, Lord, would you... Would you help us to to respond to you in faith? Would you help us to be a people that turn to you, God? I pray for anyone in this room that's afraid of of anything right now. And and it just seems like I I hear a ton about fear. And even in myself, I've experienced fear in this year. God, would we have so much confidence because of who you are? because you promise that you're with us, because we know that you're, you're, you're working to save, that you, you have saved, Lord. God, that you will not rest until your good work is accomplished. God, help us to trust in you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.